Good morning and happy new year, all over again, 2023. I was not to be up here so soon again, but Pastor Graham's grandfather passed away this past week, and so with his mind and his heart taken up with that, we switched our Sundays. Hope. That's what a new year often brings, hope and anticipation of what's to come, and that's a fitting theme for this month's series. Our focus in January is who are we going to be as a church in this new season? Who are we going to be as Elam Chapel? So for the next four Sundays, we're going to focus on who we are as a local body of believers, as Elam Chapel. What does this mean? Why does it matter? And we're going to divide up the series in this way, embrace, equip, engage, and extend. Except that, the problem with that outline is that extend, which is my little piece of the series, it was going to be last, but it's now first. We want to preface this series this month with Jesus' words taken from the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he said in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So who we are individually and collectively matters. There is someone that we want to know in an ever-deepening way so that our relationship journey with him consistently directs others' eyes to him as well. Second Peter 3.18, <clears throat> and God commands us, excuse me, God commands us through the apostle Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in 1 John 1, 3, we read that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his followers, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. In 1 Corinthians, we read that both our individual physical bodies and the collective body of the church are temples. Is my sound okay? Okay. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, and it places immeasurable honor on our individual physical bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, God tells us his heart when it comes to his collective body, his church. Don't you know that you yourselves, we, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in our midst? God's temple, that's us, is sacred, and you together are that temple. So that's a bit of a lengthy introduction just to emphasize that it matters who we are when we consider whose we are. Because of who we are in light of whose we are, we embrace, equip, engage, and extend in his ways 
And this morning, we're going to look specifically at the ways in which our Master, our Savior, asks us to extend. What does He say about generosity and giving? How does He want us how does he want to use us individually and collectively to be an extension of his generous heart? And how might we reflect his grace to one another and to those outside? What I share this morning is but a sliver of all that God has to say on this topic. But even this tiny little slice has been and continues to be a challenge to my own growth. A word that might be hanging around the periphery of our thoughts as we think of generosity and we think of this topic might be the word tithing. And we find this term in the Old Testament as it pertains to the Israelites. In the Old Testament way of life that God set out for the Israelites in the law, he required that they tithe. The tithe was a way of taking care of several things, and some scholars believe it was like a form of taxation to take care of things that needed to be taken care of. So it was, the tithe was to take care of the Levites, who perform, whose job was to take care of the tabernacle and religious duties. The tithe was also a way of taking care of the needy, uh, the alien, as some translations say it, or non-Israelites, orphaned, fatherless children, and widows. And I'm going to uh, have some references put on the screen, and I'm just going to read excerpts from some of these passages, uh, just to give us an idea to help us understand what these tithes, what their purpose was. Deuteronomy 14 says this, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, so they didn't get a portion of the land, a physical piece of inheritance, so that the Levites and the foreigners the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Numbers 18, we read this. Uh, I give to the Levites, so those were the, the priests who worked in the tabernacle, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance. Speak to the Levites and say to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe I gave you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor or juice from the wine press. In this way, you also will present an offering to the Lord. So they also presented a tithe. And then from Leviticus 27, here's, uh, just gives us a little snapshot of what, it, what the tithe might have looked like. A tithe of everything from the land. So produce, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And here's what I learned as I engaged more deeply with this topic. The Old Testament law actually required three tithes. One was to provide for the Levites. Another was to provide for the temple and related feasts. And then another was to care for the poor. So taken together, these tithes would have amounted to a little over 23% of a family's income or their resources. So just from this little snapshot, we see that in the law, God's heart was generous. Listen to his instructions in Deuteronomy 24. He says this, Do not deprive the foreigner 
or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. <clears throat> We are not under the law because Christ fulfilled the law. But our God is still the same God. Back to that famous Sermon on the Mount with which we started. Here's what Jesus taught, Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in Hebrews 13:8, we read this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God's heart has not changed. His heart is generous, he's practical, he's also lavish. And he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ to perfectly fulfill a law that we, in our broken humanity, could never perfectly walk out. Pictures help me, visuals help me, so I have a little visual as we think of this tithing and generous giving and God being the same yesterday, today, and forever. <clears throat> I like to see it as Jesus Christ being the bridge that connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. The Old Testament kept pointing to Jesus Christ, and the New Testament is the revelation of, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in knowing our Father's identity, we come to know our own identity. Our Father, our Heavenly Father is generous, and He asks us to follow in His footsteps. We might say that this generosity is grace. In grace, and I am so sorry, I'm going to get a tissue because I am struggling with a cold that never goes away. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Excuse me. In grace, generosity, knowing we were helpless to do so, Jesus Christ fulfilled the perfect, righteous requirements of the law. The perfection that the law requires, Christ became for us and is to us. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. He's our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so now, <clears throat> we no longer walk according to the letter of the law, but we walk according to the nudgings, the promptings, the whispers of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who now lives in us. <clears throat> Galatians 5 reminds us to listen to his voice. Galatians 5 says, Walk by the Spirit, 
And you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll never do anything that's against the law if you're listening to my spirit. If you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The fruit, the good that the spirit bears through us, that Christ bears through us, is defined by the word grace. And grace is wrapped up in generosity. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the requirements of a perfect law, we live in a new kingdom, a new context, a family relationship where we are sons and daughters who do not cringe fear, hoping we're doing everything right, but who live with confidence, security, and can walk by faith. Here's how God describes this new relationship in Romans 8. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's a gift as a child of God, that we've got His Spirit living in us. And that Spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption. And by Him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. Here comes a really exciting truth. At least I found it really exciting in my studies. Jesus Christ bridges the Old Testament with the New. He came and perfectly fulfilled a perfect law, the perfect law that was given to the Israelites. In that perfect law, the Israelites were commanded to make an offering called the first fruits offering. And I'm going to read that command in Leviticus 23. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priests a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He's to weigh that sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to weigh it on the day after the Sabbath. That was known as the first fruits offering. It was a dedication of the first portion of the harvest. And it was a recognition of God's abundant provision. And guess who became for us our abundant provision and who's called our first fruits? Our first fruit offering is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. As an Adam who sinned, all die, so in Christ, who fulfilled that law perfectly, all will be made alive. Jesus Christ, our first fruits offering, paid what needed to be paid. He gave what needed to be given. His payment for my sin was accepted. And because his payment was acceptable, he could say with his last breath on the cross, it's finished. His payment was acceptable, and because of that, he could return to the Father's side and say, and hear his Father say, well done, and he could sit down at the right hand of the Father. His work was finished. The joy that was set before him, you and me, his sons and daughters, we can now rest 
in his perfection. And I think that's a, an awesome um, segue into this whole idea of us being generous. We now live in a freedom that allows us to give both wildly and extravagantly and thoughtfully, generously and wisely, spontaneously and planned. Grace cannot be confined. We walk in that grace by faith, in relationship, attentive to the giver's voice. His ways are practical. His ways are also lavish, extravagant, generous. And we are his hands, feet, voice in a broken world. We are that city on a hill that cannot and must not be hidden. Our deeds and our words are to point toward a giving, generous, gracious Heavenly Father. We are stewards of grace. A steward doesn't hold on, doesn't even consider what he or she has as his own, but simply manages. We're not slaves. We're stewards. That's a high calling. 1 Corinthians 4.1 speaks to being the, stewards, the steward of a message. The Apostle Paul was explaining his identity to the Corinthians, and here's what he said. This is the way any person is to regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And in that verse, steward can be translated house manager. So we, like Paul, are stewards of a message. 1 Peter 4.10 speaks to the stewardship of our spiritual giftings. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. So again, stewards can be translated or understood as being a house distributor. We are managers of God's grace, of his generosity in all its diverse forms. What we have is not our own. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And I love what King David says, our own lives mirror what King David says of his people in 1 Chronicles 29. The people were bringing supplies for the building of the temple, and here's what David prayed. Lord our God, all this abundance, all this material, uh, these material resources that we've provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it's not actually ours. It comes from your hands and all of it belongs to you. Romans 11.36 tells us the very same thing. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. What we have comes from him and rightfully belongs to him. And so in light of that, the question in our giving and in our generosity becomes how does God want me to steward what he's given me, the spiritual gifts that he's given me, the natural abilities that, with which he created me, the message of his gospel, the material resources that he's given me, 
Does it matter how I steward? Why does it matter? Here are three truths that I think can shape our thinking as we think about generosity, though there is much, much more that could be said. The first point that I've highlighted here is stewardship is an act of worship. Romans 12.1 says, actually commands us, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, his generosity, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then in Philippians 4, Paul is commending the Philippian church. They've given him practical aid, material resources, money. We don't know exactly what it looked like. But he says to them, he describes their help as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Stewardship is an act of worship. It's also really practical. It's the way in which needs are met, and we've seen that already in that passage from Philippians when the Philippian church was taking care of Paul in material ways. We saw that in the passages from the Old Testament when the fatherless and the poor were being taken care of and people who worked in the tabernacle. It's the same today. Here at Elam, our gifts provide for the food bank. They give us heat. The gifts provide for heat in the winter, repairs to the roof, upgrade to technology, and the list goes on. 1 Corinthians 16 gives us some really practical advice when we think of stewardship as just being something that's practical. We read this. Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Stewardship is practical, and these verses show us how it's practical. It's planned giving according to what you earn, what you have. It's wise, it's thoughtful. But lest we stop it there, God, the Holy Spirit, might sometimes nudge us to give extravagantly and spontaneously. Stewardship, in that sense, might sometimes cost us. God may sometimes ask us to go above and beyond what we humanly think is wise. And this happened in 2 Corinthians 8. Here's what Paul said. Here's his praise for the Macedonian church. He said, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. We do not lose when we give. In fact, we gain. Not necessarily monetary gain, but we gain in richness of soul and life. And Jesus said that best in Acts 20, 35, when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Proverbs 22, 9 says, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. And Proverbs 11:25 25 says, a generous person will prosper, 
Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Giving infuses us, individually and as a body, with life. Generosity is life-giving. 2 Corinthians 9 says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have, what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. We're not law-bound, but we are spirit prompted to be gracious, cheerful givers. And finally, and I'll end with this, what does it matter? Why does it matter how we give? We give because it reflects the bountiful, gracious, uncontainable heart of our Heavenly Father. And it's Him, and here's how we started, it's Him we want to point others toward. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He gave. And John 3, 16, For this is how God loved. He gave. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him and Jesus Christ will not perish, but have eternal life. We give because it reflects the bountiful, gracious, uncontainable heart of our Heavenly Father.